So much of girls' sports is still modeled into plugging girls into a boys' program, into a boys' coaching mold, competitive mold, and expectation mold. That was Lauren Fleshman, and this is the Running on Ohm podcast. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and I'm curious to know whether you wake up in the morning feeling tired and question whether your morning workout is even really worth it. We've all been there, and today's podcast sponsor, The Rain, is an active recovery band made by my friends at Jaybird Sport to help you get the most out of your active life. So what is The Rain? Well, The Rain is an activity tracker that can be worn on your wrist like a sleek and comfortable bracelet, but it does so much more than just track your steps and your sleep. The Rain is an advanced recovery tool that will help you take your training and life to the next level. The Rain's innovative technology goes beyond just tracking your walking steps, but actually recognizes the various types of activities and sports you do. Whether you're swimming in the pool, walking your dog around the block, or out on the trails for a run, the Rain automatically tracks the various activities and sports you participate in so that you can be provided with a personalized activity recommendation that actually lets you know what you're doing and how you like to move without you having to tell it. The rain also goes beyond just tracking the hours you sleep at night, but provides you with recommendations on how many hours to sleep, when to head to bed, and when to wake up based on your sleep patterns. The rain will help you feel at your best when you need to by staying current to your changing sleep needs. My favorite part of the rain is the go zone. Remember when I said that some mornings you wake up, I wake up, we all do, and you don't really have the energy to work out? Well, the RAIN's Go Zone gives you a Go score every morning that basically says how recovered, fatigued, or ready you are for your workout based on your heart rate variability. So sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking we aren't up for that workout, but the RAIN's Go score could actually tell you that you're ready to have the workout of your life. Or maybe today's the day to go easy if you had a hard work planned. If you too want to optimize your athletic performance, your life with the rain, Jaybird has given Running on Ohm listeners a generous discount of 40% off this advanced activity recovery band with the discount code FLESHMAN40. That's F-L-E-S-H-M-A-N 40, which can be found in this episode's show notes. So get the most out of your active life with Jaybird's rain. And now let's dive into our show. Hey friends, if this is your first time tuning into Running on a Welcome, and if this is your 179th time, welcome back. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and what do we even do here on Running on Ohm? Well, every week, I bring you conversations that are beyond just the nuts and bolts of yoga and running. Here at Running on Ohm, we dive deep with wellness pioneers who explore the mind-body-spirit connection through different mediums, from actors, meditators, musicians, athletes, authors, entrepreneurs, Olympic gold medalists, chefs to surfers. I believe that the stories of the people that I bring on for all of you every week, twice a week, can change your life. Today's conversation is with Lauren Fleshman, and it's part of a monthly Ask Lauren Fleshman series on the Running on Ohm podcast. So if you don't know Lauren already, she is a professional runner, a coach, a mother, business owner of Picky Bars, writer, and straight up one of the most amazing people I know. Last month, we kickstarted the series with episode number 171 on chasing your dreams. They got some great feedback from all of you, so thank you so much for reaching out and sharing the series with your friends and submitting your questions for this month. We were totally blown away by the amount of people who submitted thoughtful and heartful questions for us to answer. In this episode, Lauren digs into some of your questions from this past month on how to balance training and running goals with motherhood and a full-time job the importance of recovery and process-based goals for master's runners chasing fast times, 
why high school runners should not lose weight for competition, how to manage one's creative endeavors with their passion for running, balancing gratitude for a partner's repeated sacrifices of time spent together with a continued commitment to the demands of running training, the role of dissatisfaction in weight-related running goals, and what key lessons Lauren has learned from her son. What I love about this Q&A format with Lauren is that she brings her real lived stories and experiences to all the listener questions. They're not just cut and dry answers. Lauren opens up on the highs and lows of her life as a runner, as a human being, and that she's faced some of the same uncertainties as all of you. If you dig this Ask Lauren Fleshman series on running a gnome, reach out, let us know what you thought about it, and share this conversation with your running buddy, your mailman, your mom, your friend, or someone you know who wants to explore some tough questions on gender, motherhood, and body image. If a question comes to mind for you when listening today, write it down. Keep your eyes peeled out on our Twitter accounts, where we will announce the next one-week window where you can submit a question for March's Ask Lauren Fleshman episode on running a gnome. Thank you guys for listening to this longer intro. Thank you for supporting Running on Ohm. And let's dive deep together in today's question and answer with Lauren Fleshman. I noticed your necklace. Brave. How long have you had that for? I got this from my sister-in-law um, right around my birthday. She gave it to me after my dad passed away. It's a little reminder. And then the chain promptly got tied into about four knots by Jude. So I didn't get to wear it until Christmas. So it kind of sat there for a long time looking back at me. And I was a little bit scared to put it on, to be honest, like afraid to undo the knot. I don't know. There's something about being like, it was like a declaration if I put it on. Yeah. And a declaration (laughs) to wear brave, like in the center of your chest. In the center of my chest that I'm going to be brave. Yeah. Especially because I knew the meaning behind it from her. So it took a little bit of working through the grief process before I felt ready for it. I didn't really feel brave. Yeah, and I think that word bravery holds a lot of resonance in your life, both in the past of the symbolism of a line for you and your mm-hmm. racing, but also right now, like where you're at with running and coaching, bravery is also present now. So where are you at, Lauren? <laughs> where am I at with my bravery? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I had a few interesting things happen in the past week. Um one was speaking of my dad. It's interesting you pointed out my necklace because I have periods of time where I really don't think about him. And I've had lots of people who have lost a parent or a loved one say, you'll, you know, you'll miss them every single day. You'll think about them every single day. It'll always hurt and all this stuff. And it'll, you know, you'll, you'll miss them. You will literally think of them every day. And that just isn't true for me. I don't think of my dad every day. Um, I also didn't think of him every day when he was alive. I didn't call him every single day. You know, I called him once a week and we had a really great relationship. But so when he does come into my consciousness in a really strong way, it takes me off guard. And in the last week, he's been showing up all over the place for me. And um, yeah, so just feeling, you know, a little more weepy more frequently, um, seeing my necklace in the mirror, you know, a little bit harder. And um and then even just a friend, uh, Dr. Melody Moore, posted this picture on her Instagram of this bench on the beach in Santa Monica area. And I instantly recognized the bench as one of the last places I spent time with my dad um, when he did this really unusual thing. He sat there with his eyes closed and had this peaceful look on his face and it was just it just looked like he was just soaking in 
everything around him, all the energy around him. And my dad's like this real roughneck construction type guy, cusses all the time and doesn't talk about feelings all that much and whatever. I mean, but he, he looked like he was in having a Zen moment. And he's also a guy that would never talk about death, wouldn't talk about the negative things that could happen. It was just like he was forging ahead and everyone else knew he was going to die except him. And so when I saw him like that, I was like, whoa, this looks like something is going on. But in a classic Fleshman family way, once he sort of got out of it and got off the bench, I was like giving him shit about it. You know, what was that about, dad? <laughs> having a moment, you know, like <laughs> trying to make light of it. And he was like, oh, I was just meditating. And it was like he was speaking a foreign language. I couldn't believe it. I was like, what did you do with my dad? Frank Fleshman meditating. Like, what is happening? So that was the bench that she posted in the picture. And so that was crazy. She just moved to that area. And um, so that made me think about him too. And and then I did a crazy thing last night. You haven't told me about this? <laughs> no, what? I haven't told you about this. did a crazy thing. Uh, NPR... All Songs Considered has like this Tiny Desk concert series and they're having a Tiny Desk contest and it's been going on for three weeks or something and I didn't even know about it. I randomly saw a tweet about it that said, you know, enter your submission into the Tiny Desk contest. We want like random people basically playing music they've written and we could pick you to come play at the Tiny Desk. Well, I love Tiny Desk concerts. So I had been thinking about my dad a lot and had been feeling him around. And the only song I've written in years, really, is a song about my dad that I played at some open mic nights in town. And so I was just like, this is literally the last day. I have three hours. And I asked Jesse if he would record me. So I I recorded a submission and sent it in last night, which is just funny because there's no real objective. I don't want to be a famous musician or like I don't even really care about winning. But it was just something that I felt like putting out there all of a sudden. And I wouldn't have done that if my dad hadn't been on my heart this week. So that was one of the main things that's been going on there. So I felt like that was kind of brave. Yeah, And then I had something happen in um, coaching that was like a big moment for me. Um, Let'sRun.com had posted sort of like the weekly highlights from some competitions and had posted about uh, Kate Grace's amazing mile performance, which was awesome. Like, I'm so happy to see those results, and it was great. And uh, I used to coach Kate, and um, she now works with Drew Wartenberg down in Sacramento. And um, and so in the write-up, it was just a little comment, but it said, you know, Kate Grace's performance, super awesome, currently coached by Drew Wartenberg, formerly coached by Lauren Fleshman's husband, Jesse Thomas, in Bend, Oregon. And and I just looked at it and I just laughed. And at the same time, got kind of mad um, because I was like, my husband. I mean, it's not like my husband coaches other athletes in town. He doesn't coach at all. <laughs> He's like a, a professional triathlete. There's really no – I couldn't think of any way to mix those things up other than gender bias and other than just how rare a female coach is – and a female coach of elite athletes is. And so if a person didn't know and they were just going to make a guess between me or my husband who was coaching Kate Grace at the time, they would probably guess my husband. It just became very apparent to me that there is still a lot of gender bias. I live in a very empowered bubble with Wazelle and my family and, you know, a like, super feminist husband and all this stuff. So um, I was just like, wow, I can't believe that would happen. And then... I got kind of mad about it and tweeted some snarky stuff about Let's Run a little bit, which wasn't one of my finer moments, but I just thought it was 
kind of funny and needed to be called out. And, um, and actually Robert Johnson, one of the founders was super cool about it. And he reached out, wanted to talk about it. We talked on the phone and, um, you know, I think what I realized was, and I admitted this to him, I said, I do, I definitely believe gender bias is present and, you know, sexism is a huge problem on let's run, run.com's message boards. And it's just not a safe place for women. But I am also realizing that, yeah, there wasn't a lot of content out there that would easily point to who the coach of Little Wing is um, because I've been kind of afraid to really own it and step into it publicly. You know, it's on my social media profiles or whatever. It says I'm a coach, but I don't write lots of blogs about coaching. I don't shout it from the rooftops or advertise it. Um, and I, I think I told myself before that that was because it's not really about me. It's about the athletes and all that. And that is true. But I also think that, um, it's because I haven't seen a lot of female coaching modeling modeled for me. And I don't feel totally comfortable and confident owning that role or I didn't previously. And so that whole little snafu that really wasn't that big of a deal, but it, it woke me up to the fact that, you know, I am ready to step into that and say, I am a coach of elite athletes and I'm confident in what I'm doing. That doesn't mean that I know everything just like no one else does. But more often I see men, even new coaches, men who have never coached before, kind of just walk right into it and put on those boots and be like, yeah, I'm a coach and I'm recruiting people and whatever. And I saw it at the college level all the time. Teammates of mine from Stanford who got coaching gigs. I'm like, they had no experience. Why are they so confident? But it's the, you know, it's the difference of having seen it done by people you can identify with over and over again. And then when it's your turn to do it, you can just step into it. Also, um, what I find interesting about the coaching discussion is as someone who sees you on a daily basis, I think coaching is one of the things in your life that actually brings you the most amount of joy, mm -hmm. like in the day to day. Yeah. And is such a pillar of your actual daily life. And I would understand on some level why maybe also you want to create, create some privacy there mm -hmm. because it is a really intimate thing of like you having connections with your athletes that are not like they shouldn't be public. Yeah. It, but I, it is. It's different. Coaching has a different place in my life. And you're right. There is. And I didn't really think about it that way. But the privacy part, I think it has to do with I don't have um, I don't have like ambition around coaching in the same way I might have business ambition, you know, where I might talk about picky bars a lot. Well, one, because I believe in the company that we built and everything, but I want picky bars to succeed and grow. And part of having that happen is talking about picky bars. Well, with coaching, I don't go talking about all the time because I'm not trying to build my reputation as a coach and become this you know, I'm not looking for that side of it at all. It's really just about these are the women that I work with. I'm pouring myself into them. They're pouring themselves into their dreams. It's satisfying. I believe in my ability to to do my best with them. And and it really kind of stops there. Like that's big enough, you know? Yeah. I think the whole gender conversation though about female models for coach coaching is a huge thing in our running world yeah then I mean, there's a lot of growth there there is there's they're unicorns female coaches and not just in running you look you can look at the statistics on 
pro sports, NCAA sports, even the number, the percentage of coaches of women's teams across the board that used to be coached by women. It used to be women coaching women's teams after Title IX. There was a big push there. And then the better the women's teams got, the more men wanted to, the coaching jobs to coach women. It suddenly became like a coveted cool thing. And then more and more men are getting jobs like – basically the percentage of women holding women's coaching jobs is getting lower. And, of course, the number of women coaching men's teams is not growing at some alarming rate. So it's one of the biggest gender disparity areas still. I mean, you see it across the board in reporting as well, sports reporting. Jessica Mendoza's reporting in baseball now, which is a big deal. It's like, you know, you'd think she invented antibiotics or something by the amount of like a splash it's making on the sports scene. And she's incredible. I went to school with her. She's an incredible woman. Like, I'm so glad to see her doing it. But the fact that it is that big of a deal just goes to show how rare it is. Yeah. I have a story I want to share with you on this that we've never talked about, but I was last year, I was a coach of um, the track and field program at my high school. And I was the head distance coach and I had 25 athletes I worked with, and there was 20 boys and five girls. Mm-hmm. And the boys, um, I loved all the, I loved all the athletes. It was a total joy to work with them every day. But there were definitely some boundary issues there. Mm-hmm. Um, as a female coach of a group of high school boys that I'm not that far an age from, yet I am a lot more experienced. Yeah, and they were really uncomfortable with me as their coach for the beginning couple weeks yeah. until we really got into our rhythm. And I at times felt like I had to be even more strict. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was one athlete who one day sent out an email to the entire team in response to something like an email I sent about meat information. And he took a picture of my face and imposed it on a male body uh-huh. um, and on like a shirtless, fat, like male body that had guns it was the most bizarre thing (laughs) that's so weird it was so weird i mean obviously this is this kid has some issues and it was brought to the school administration but in that moment i was like he couldn't have done that with a male coach's face Mm -hmm. like what would have been the reverse of that like him putting a male's face on a woman's bikini body or like what like what could you do i don't know yeah i don't know it was so crazy (laughs) but it's like it just shows you like at any in any part of our sport, whether it's just high schoolers or let's run.com, like there's so much work to be done. There is a lot of work to be done. And it does, it, I think that is part of the, um, the reason why women's only events, uh, women's only running apparel companies, you know, people speaking to women is still really important because we do benefit from having kind of those sacred spaces to be athletes around each other, building confidence, building our culture there and helping define the sport the way we want to define it. Because when you just leave it up to like the odds, you can kind of see where the statistics fall of how many women end up in positions of power and, you know, who guides the conversation. Like the default guide of the conversation in sports is still heavily male so we need we need those women's spaces and and you know i in general most of my life just the thought of a women's only or men's only something was gross to me i never i just didn't get it you know i, I had this utopian feeling that we should 
all just intermingle all the time and that'd be the best way forward. And, and I think there definitely is now I've come around to like, there's time and place for both. And I think men need their dude time and women need their woman time and we need our time together. And, and that like, I just don't see anything bad about that as long as the messaging isn't a negative hate and it's of building each other up and respect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think we could probably spend a whole podcast on this, but we're not going to. Um, but I want to, before we jump into the question, I want to just get an update for you on where you're at with your personal training. Oh, Last personal time training, yeah. we talked about where you're at with Alter G and mm-hmm. the process. So like, where are you right now? Oh man. Early February. I'm really hoping that this, this part of this conversation on the podcast gets a nice little boost of caffeine or something maybe next month. I still don't have great news this month. Um, I was just thinking today about how I really want to write a blog about what's going on in my running. And all I could think of for the opening line is, I don't know how to write about my running right now. I don't know how to talk about it. I'm not running right now. I want to be running right now. Those two things have not changed for quite some time. Um, My Achilles attachments, the new attachment areas to where the surgery was, are they're just taking a long time to come around and heal and, and not cause pain. So I'm, I've really backed way down. I'm barely doing anything I, physical. Um, I'm putting my energy into other things. The thing that's been good, and I don't know if I got to this last month, if I'm repeating myself, I apologize. But regardless, in the past month, I've developed more confidence that my love of this sport is not attached to my ability to perform as an elite athlete and my passion for, um, you know, making athletes rights, uh, issues move forward for making, uh, helping contribute to things that empower female athletes and drive, you know, the kind of gender balance stuff and to just, talking to all athletes and answering questions or doing whatever I can to just add something valuable back into the running community that's given me so much. Like I don't, I was worried a month or two ago that if I can't run, will I just want to leave completely and do something else? And I I don't feel that way. I feel very secure that I love this and that I'm I'm here. And that everyone wants you here in whatever capacity that that is. Whoever wants to listen will listen, and whoever doesn't do- won't, and that's fine. <laughs> Rock on. <laughs> but I haven't given up. Um, I'd say I've surrendered to a certain degree the control of this situation. It's not something I can force into getting better. You know, I can't just will my way through it or do more exercises. So that's a different position to be in. And it um, takes returning to bravery. It takes a certain level of bravery and courage to surrender. Yeah, I think so too. Let's dig into the question. Let's do it. So our first question today is from mom who still has goals in her 30s. She writes, Hello, since having my little one 16 months ago, I struggle to keep up with my training. I do work 40 hours a week, Monday through Friday. And at the end of the day, the last thing on my mind is scampering around to get him in the stroller for a two to six mile run, let alone anything longer. The weekends are the only time I can do a good eight to 10 mile, but the weekdays are zero. How do you balance some sleep, rest, and training while being a mommy? 
TMI, this is my first little one and he has gotten the best of me. I'm tired. My issue is I'm so stubborn. I still have running goals. I want to tackle a few ultras, hit that 37 minute 10K and I feel like I will never get there. Hmm. Oh man, flashbacks. Um, for those who don't know, I have a two and a half year old and I really, when this, when I read this question for the first time, I just wanted to give mom still has goals a hug because with your first kid at 16 months, you feel like you should be, you know, everything should be fine now. That's a, that's a long time. That's over a year. Um, all the people that at one point were really interested in your baby and your postpartum recovery kind of not asking questions anymore. You're supposed to have sort of found your groove and be moving on. But this is the truth. I think most, I find that most moms lie. <laughs> Just being honest. It's really hard to find a mom who is very honest about her postpartum experience with a, you know, up to two-year-old child. Um, at a certain point, you're supposed to be putting on your brave face and plowing your way through and finding your balance again and getting, you know, and, and, and I think, um, and finding this immense joy in motherhood all the time. There's all these things you're supposed to be doing. And, uh, I just think that, you know, you got to honor, you got to honor the momhood of where you're at right now. Um, I can tell you that it will get better, which I'm sure since you're a mom of, of one kid, you've probably heard that a million times. That's the thing everyone says. It will get better. It's true though. It will get better. Other things, other parts of it get harder, but you have different challenges. And I've personally found between a year and 18 months to be the hardest period of time. Um, the tiredness you talk about, man, like it just piles on. And it's when you're starting to try to really integrate other things into your life that you had before you had your kid and you're making those concerted efforts and they wipe you out. It's like, you don't have the endurance for them yet. You don't, you're not, you know, your energy bank from not sleeping well for a year. You haven't made your way out of that yet. Like that takes a while to get out of that hole. So there's a couple of gems in here. I would say you can do an eight to 10 miler on the weekends good for you. Do that. Enjoy it. Um, the two to six mile runs, you know, after a 40 hour work week on the, on those days when you get home, I understand why you wouldn't want to do that. Especially if you have to do it with a baby stroller, like no offense to people who love running with a stroller. I do not like running with a stroller. Like I would rather not run than run with a stroller. And maybe my question for you would be, you know, are, if you have a partner in parenting, um, I don't think it's unreasonable personally to at least ask if when you get home from work, if you can go on your run two to six miles by yourself, because everything with a kid takes so long, packing him up, getting him ready, getting him in the stroller. And, and that's not really quality time anyway. And I, I have struggled with this myself too. I've been at work all day. I feel like I want to be with my kid. I really miss my kid, but I have this, I want have this thing I want to do, whether it's exercise or whatever. And if you're trying to bring your kid with you into that, it's not like you're playing you're actually present with your really. Kid. Yeah. Like they're getting something out of it. They're getting fresh air and to be outside, but like they could still get fresh air and be outside while they're not on your run. And what you might need is to just have your run, have your run time. And even if it is just two, two miles to start and you give your kid to your partner and be like, 
give me 30 minutes, please. Like I really need this 30 minutes three times a week. And then my weekend run, that's great. Now, is that going to get you towards the running goals that you have that are in your heart right now, tackling a few ultras, hitting a 37 minute 10 K not really. It's not going to get you there in the short term, but it will get you there in the long term. Like it's all about the baby steps. I would say, you know, you're, you um, say that you're in your thirties, your kid is only 16 months old. You have so much time. You have so much time to tackle all those things. There's, I know you've, that when you um, get pregnant and you have a little one, it's so much about patience. It's like, you've donated your body to science for so long and now you just want it back and you want to start engaging with it and pushing it. And, and then we have to balance that with the fact that 16 months is not that much time and it, you know, and you're going to need to ask for more help in order to do that. And it's going to take time to negotiate those things with your partner, find the support you need, get everybody on board with it and gradually work towards it. So I would say, keep those goals in your heart. Don't, you don't have to let them go. Just try casting, you know, casting it out a little bit further, take the pressure off of yourself and look at the small victories along the way. Look at getting in that weekend run and carving out Maybe 30 two, minutes twice a week. Yeah, 30 minutes twice a week is like a big win. And and knowing that it is doing something for you. It's setting the foundation. It's giving you some fitness, but it's also setting the foundation and in, in prompting you to ask for the help you need and setting up your life in a way that will eventually grow into letting you accomplish those goals you still have. Yeah, I think you covered it. That's great, Lauren. So for our next question, from Running on Venti, who's in her 40s, she writes... I'm about to turn 49 on 129. So that already passed at this point. Happy birthday. (laughs) To me, the number 49 is just that, a number. It lets me know how much life experience I have. Right now, while leading a full life, mom of two daughters, 16 and 14, wife, runner, small business coach, and creative, I'm also training for May 1st marathon to qualify for Boston, a dream revisited. Every day I'm faced with comments of, For your age, when your age group, your foot hurts because you're older now. It drives me crazy. I know that my physical body is getting older. I get it. I just don't like to use this as an excuse. I do find myself getting frustrated sometimes that I'm not running faster and this falls over into other areas of my life. I know you need to be realistic, but when does reality become an excuse and you really can reach higher? How do you know when it's you holding yourself back and not fall prey to the getting older excuse? Hmm. I really like this question. I am not a master's athlete. I'm 34, but I coach a few master's athletes. And um, I actually would like to call a friend, one of the athletes that I coach, uh, Dr. Sarah Lesko, and see if she could give us a little bit of her insight into this. She is um, 46, I believe. She might have just turned 47. We'll ask her. And a mother of three, doctor, and does some work with Wazal in corporate development. Okay, let's give Sarah a ring. Hey, Lesko, how you doing? Hi, good. How are you? Good. Thank you for um, taking a call and, and being willing to chime in on uh, running on Venti's question today. Sure. Uh, so you had a look at the question. Um, what made me think of you is, you know, uh, you're a master's athlete that I coach, obviously. And I, um, 
you know, I, I recognize the, you're, you're, you fall into a category of, I would say, competitive masters. You care about your performance, but you also have um, come up against some obstacles related to um, age, potentially, and, um, and are having to kind of navigate through that. And you had a 17-year break from running, right? Yeah, about 17 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before getting back into it and having that fire get relit. And then um, and maybe you could just tell everybody a little bit about how that was for you before we dive into the question. Sure. I mean, I ran um, competitively through college and then attempted for two years after to run at a competitive level, um, you know, attempting to make national kind of get to that next, uh, next level um, as a you know, not a pro, but uh, like at that, at that post-collegiate competitive level and just got injured and so kind of put it behind me and got on my, with my life, went to med school, had a family and, you know, I just, every time I tried to run, my old injury would come back immediately. So I just kind of put it aside for a really long time, um, 17 years and, and kind of drifted in and out of following the sport. But in 2008, my husband and I um, took our kids to the Olympic trials in Eugene to watch, and it was just such an inspiring event. And I specifically remember watching Amy Oder Bagley's race, where she qualified all, all on her own um, and got the A standard in the 10K. And it was just so inspiring that I realized I had to do whatever I could to get back to running. And so I pretty much adjusted my whole work schedule and everything so that I could once and for all figure out what my injury was. Wow. And then um, from then, how has your path been with balancing competitive goals with when your body isn't cooperating? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of, um, I like that question because it's a, it's a realization of what each thing does affect and what it doesn't affect. And I think you know, the science, I think, is pretty, lies pretty far behind the reality of female athletes aging. I think we don't have enough information. I think that the female athlete can perform at very high levels, um, very long, and continue going. on. I mean, we look at people like Dina Castor and Jones and White Samuelson, who are running amazingly fast, um, you know, at, at age 42, and I don't remember how old Joni is, but I know she's in her 50s. So... You know, and I think that that those performances really show us that the science and what people tell us about what what the female body is going to do as it ages probably isn't quite um, accurate yet. But there are realities to aging, and I think that where those tend to lie is on um, in the border of kind of recovery and the recuperative processes because those definitely do slow down. And so I think kind of what I'm coming around to with my training is that I can train at a very high level and perform at a very high level, but I have to give myself double to triple the rest and recuperative effort that I would have in the past. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, that to me is really powerful information, thinking about not putting a limit on what you're capable of, but being willing to adjust your path, like allowing that reality, not, not fighting that reality and saying, okay, five days a week, even of running is good. It doesn't mean you have to sacrifice what you think you can achieve. It just means you have to, yeah, like maybe just adapt what used to work for you. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like do it a different way. I mean, I know for runners, a lot of us, you know, we've kind of had it drilled into us that like, oh, if you want to run fast, you need to run X number of miles per week. And, you know, for a lot of like middle distance, I still think of myself as a middle distance runner, which is just where I naturally like to compete. You know, for me, it's like, well, I can't be legit unless I'm running over 40 miles a week. But it may be that I can perform at a very high level, but maybe I actually can't maintain 40 miles a week without getting injured because I need to take two days off per week. So if I consider my week at age 46, maybe I should really think of that as eight to nine days. And running 45 miles in nine days is the equivalent to someone younger running 45 miles in seven days. Mm, I really like that. I also wanted to ask you a question. Um, There was one line in her question that stood out to me. She says... Um, I do find myself getting frustrated sometimes that I'm not running faster, and this falls over into other areas of my life. Um, to me, I found this is not really an age-specific question. Like this, this problem is just, you know, this this problem she's feeling, this area of pain is like it just exists for everyone. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think if you care about your running, if it's not going well and you're feeling for whatever reason like you're underachieving or failing at it, it will spill out into other areas of your life because that's what being a human is about. I mean, we can't compartmentalize ourselves that way, especially with something that's as personal as your relationship with running. Yeah, and if she is um, experiencing this kind of crisis of confidence of, are my goals, this goal to qualify for Boston, like these big dreams I have, people are telling me, you know, put kind of throwing age in my face repeatedly, um, that that is, I think I'm kind of not really, I'm kind of losing track of what I'm trying to say here. Um, I think what you're speaking to Lauren is the fact that like people will use age as an excuse and that's what running on Venti is speaking to. Yeah. But I think what Sarah is Mm -hmm. saying Age is less, it's not about of an excuse, but age is a time to recalibrate how you view your running. Mm-hmm. And so it's less of an excuse of being like, I can't run 45 miles in seven days. It's like a recalibration of what does a week look like for you at your age and with your body. Yeah, I think so. And then whether it's because you're 49 um, or because you're a uh, steeplechaser trying to make the Olympic trials or whatever, if you're experiencing the, like kind of this frustration of not achieving what you want in running and it's spilling into other areas of your life, you may need to recalibrate your goal or you just may need to have a more process-driven goal to, to balance out yeah. that outcome-driven yeah. goal. And, yeah. and qualifying for Boston is a very specific goal. Yeah, I think sometimes too comments like that can come from people who, if you're expressing disappointment or frustration, they feel like they're comforting you somehow. So they feel like maybe, you know, maybe I'm asking them for that type of permission. But if you really don't want, if you don't want that feedback, then, you know, sometimes it's a matter of reframing within yourself what your disappointment is about or how you express it to people. So if you find a way to remain positive about your own goals. So if I'm able to say like, wow, I feel I really want to qualify for for Boston, you know, it's taking me longer than I thought. It's a bumpy road, but I know the process is worth it. So try to really frame it positively for yourself. And sometimes you won't get as much of that, the commentary from the outside. People don't feel like they have to somehow give you an excuse. So Mm -hmm. it might be kind of a, a dual 
you know, I like a, that type of interaction happening too. I notice that if I'm putting out weird energy, sometimes people say things that, that piss me off, but then I realize I was the one who started it. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, I think that's great advice for her to kind of check in with what she's putting out there about her frustrations, for sure. Um, yeah, because I know sometimes I'll be like, oh, man, I feel like my body's getting old. And then, like, when I say it, I'm like, I know that I should not even say that because that's not, you know, then someone will be like, oh, well, you are 46. And then it's like, oh, well, that's not what I wanted to hear. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you open that door <laughs> real wide. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and then pretty soon it's everywhere around you. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for picking up Lesko and offering your experience. It was good insight. Thank you so much, Lesko. We're really grateful. Oh, yeah, sure. No worries. It's great. And Masters Runners rock. <laughs> they, awesome. they do. <laughs> As do All right. you. <laughs> All, right. All right. See you guys later. Okay. Bye. Bye. I love that. Lesko, she always has such interesting insight in general. She's someone that I trust a lot with my own running. I talk to her about all the things that I'm struggling with. Um, Little Wing uses her as a resource as a family doctor. She also has a lot of things she can offer as far as how to stay healthy, keep in check with your body in general, women-specific issues, catch signs of overtraining early, all those things. Um, yeah, she is an incredible resource and the Wazel community and family is really blessed to have her. Yes. Big time. So what's, what's next? Let's check it out. Our third question today that we want to talk about is a pretty juicy one. It is from runner female who's in high school and she writes, have you ever dealt with pressure to lose weight in order to drop your times quickly? If so, how did you deal with this pressure? And what is your advice to a junior in high school who feels this way? Well, this question just like wrenches my heart because it's everywhere in youth sports and in collegiate sports right now. And with performances increasing, expectations increasing across the board, um, it's becoming, I think, more of a problem. But it's been a problem for a long time. Eating disorders... um, you know, you, what, what runner female is showing us is that first time in your life, performance and weight become connected. And what I wish I could call her, but uh, to find out where is this pressure coming from? Because um, it can come from a lot of things. It can be a perceived pressure. The way I experienced it in my running was in seeing other women drastically losing weight and then getting an enormous performance boost almost immediately. And I experienced that in college for the most part. It seemed like it was somebody different every year would come out of nowhere and be, you know, winning or podium at Pac-10s or NCAAs in cross country. And, uh, and uh, you know, you see that, you see the success. You're not around long enough to see the negative consequences of those decisions. You just see the success and... So you can feel pressure to do the same thing. Um, Then there's direct pressure. There's plenty of this around. I've heard so many stories. I'm very fortunate. I've never had a negative experience like this myself where a coach has sat me down and basically put pressure on me to lose weight. I've actually had healthy conversations about weight as one factor in performance with my coaches. So kudos to them, to Coach Vin Lanana. I feel like he handled that very well. 
when I was in school and my coaches afterwards. Um, so man, what I would say, you're a junior in high school, you're feeling pressure to lose weight, to drop times quickly. Don't do it. Just don't do it. I mean, it's that simple. Do not succumb to that pressure. Recognize it as false. You do not need to do that. It is not in your best interest as an athlete. Even if it will give you a short-term boost, that's what people aren't telling you. They aren't going to tell you that this is a short-term thing. It will be a short-term thing. Best case scenario, you'll have a short-term little window of improved performance and then like consequences of injuries and underperformance, metabolism, shifting, all those things. Um, When you're 17, 18, 19, 20, your body as a female is going through some necessary changes that are just part of adolescence and part of growing into your woman self. And being engaged in competitive endurance sports during that time is naturally going to be at odds with some of that natural growth. And what women should be expecting is they should expect a plateau or even a lull in the short term. And you won't see this on the boys' teams. So it's really hard because you'll see it on the boys' teams that they get better every year. It's like they just get taller, more testosterone, stronger, and they get better. And girls have this different path. And so much of girls' sports is still modeled into plugging girls into a boys' program, into a boys' coaching mold, competitive mold, expectation mold, still mostly men coaches. And I don't think it's malintention most of the time, although there are some bad eggs out there. I think that we need to really be respectful of this time of life in a woman's life to allow her body to shift and change. And instead of putting the emphasis when that body changes on, you should lose weight to run faster. We should say, your body's changing. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what kind of tools you're going to need to stay healthy, to, um, you know, to maintain your menstrual cycle, to have training integrate with that and to kind of ride this out. Just ride this little wave out for a little while, and then your body you'll adjust to your woman body. And if you do, you know, 17-year-old runner female, like if you do project ahead, you will see that the best times in your career are ahead of you and that no short-term thing is worth missing out on that. It just gets so much better. So fight the good fight. Find good role models, find an ally, and take care of your body. I couldn't agree with everything you said, like more, I think you just said it all and that you have to really, um, believe in the sustainability of your body and invest in the long term. Like if you want to be running three years, five years from now, the, what you're doing now will have an impact on that. And so allowing your body to actually grow and change during this crazy, beautiful, complicated time of puberty and young adulthood is important to allow that process to happen. Mm -hmm. And I'm just excited if she's able to take a road that is an empowered road for her, what can come. Yes. And there will come a time in every female athlete's career where you will learn how to use nutrition and use training in a way to maintain a certain body weight or to, you know, uh, achieve a certain composition. But the time to do that is not in the, the heart of when your body's going through these necessary physical and hormonal changes. The time to do that is when you're 21, 22, 23, to try to hone in that part of your growth as an athlete. And you, in the whole arc of your athletic career, you know the stage you're in right now is is in 
developing a true passion and love for what you do, a love for running, a love for your teammates, a love for like the heart of your sport. That doesn't mean you can't also want to run fast and be good at it, but that's the, the central focus should be really falling in love with it. And then in college, you know, the focus shifts to something else, a more rigorous competitive schedule, kind of being on your own for the first time, prioritizing your sport by yourself without a parent to drive you somewhere. This is about really owning your sport, taking ownership over it. And then the next stage is more, if you're going to keep doing it, is more about your body as a machine. You know, what do you want your body to do for you? What kind of, what, how, you know, the, like it's settled into who you are now. So how do you want to tweak it, modify it, get stronger, this, that, whatever. You can have more confidence doing it then without suffering consequences or holding back your natural progression. And I think there are, as we've spoken to, especially with women and all the changes women go through, this is very relevant. Um, but it, it also holds light for what's men and puberty and men. And I, men do feel pressure even at the high school age to lose weight Mm -hmm. for performance. So I think we also have to just acknowledge that this is not just women. It isn't just women. It's just that, um, the unique part is this kind of four, four year window with women where we're particularly vulnerable to stress fractures, eating disorders, changing our relationship with food in ways that will last the rest of our lives in a worst case scenario or many, many years in a best case scenario. Um, and those things just aren't worth it to run a little bit faster right now. It's just not, of course. Yeah. It's just not worth it. Yeah. Our fourth question is from Rosie of all trades, a master of none (laughs) who's in her thirties. I love how you are open about your non-running passions. How do you find time for all your creative pursuits? I'm a newish mom, little person is a year old, a full-time school counselor, and a runner who also loves to create, learn, and experiment. Right now, life is family and a job. My free time is earmarked for running, since it's pretty much my mental and physical therapy. But I miss my creative pursuits, as they're just as much a part of me as running is. Any tips or encouragement for the creativity-frustrated non-pro mother runner? Can I have it all or should I just say fuck it and give away my weaving loom and the majority of my art supplies? <laughs> I love the end of that question. Rosie of all trades, I, um, when I first read your question, I kind of, my first gut response was actually say fuck it and give away all of it because it's really hard to do it all. <laughs> but then I thought, um, you know, Rosie, you're not from what you say in your question, you're not a professional athlete. You're not a professional runner, right? So you don't have to do running every single day, right? But what I do know is that culturally, it's it's more acceptable to carve out time for yourself for physical exercise than maybe it is to carve out time for you to weave, right? Like it's easier to say to your partner, hey, I need to get in. Like I really need to get in my 45-minute run, and have them go, okay, I get that. That's physical and mental health. You know, that's great. That's great for everybody. You know, getting in shape, doing your thing, sweating, you know, you'll be happier later. But to honor your creative passions in the same way, I think that's what I would recommend that you do. I think I would say keep the earmarked time that you have every day for your running and take one or two of those to start and replace it with weaving or some other thing. And I would say like pick one to start. Just this is, you know, there's lots of ways to do this, but what has worked for me is I have also a giant box full of every kind of arts and crafts material available that you can imagine. I have oil paints, acrylic paints, charcoals, 
um, watercolor, pastels, like you name it. I've bought all the things over all the years, <laughs> knitting, you name it. And it's just been sitting there for quite some time, um, basically ever since I started Picky Bars. And you can only do so much stuff. But you said your child is one. Right around when Jude was two, I started to feel like I really did need a creative outlet and that running and fitness was just not cutting it. And I started to make time for guitar. I just picked one, singing and songwriting guitar. And really it's one day a week, I meet a friend and we jam. And then sometimes I play an open mic night. So that's two things a week maximum that I do. And it has been so good for me, like so unbelievably fulfilling um, that I feel as if I have painted, knitted, done an oil pastel, like you name it. I feel like I've done all those things because I'm just giving myself at least one of them. Um, so try that. What, yeah, I think what you're speaking to is just being very purposeful about the time you carve out for the creative activity. Because I think we sometimes, in our beings, so much of us have that creative flow of energy within us. We think it should just flow naturally throughout our days. Mm -hmm. Like we should just be able to find time to write or to sing or to paint. Yeah. But actually what we're saying is in this modern world, you need to say, okay, here's my hour where I'm going to be creative and maybe the juices will flow or maybe it'll not, <laughs> it'll not work out. And that's okay. Just like some runs you go on feel great and others you come back feeling like, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't super awesome. Yeah. Well maybe, Hey, maybe this would be a good start. Put on your running clothes, grab your palette and your paints <laughs> and go to a coffee shop instead of for a run, get out of the house away from the family and spend the amount of time you would have spent running doing that. You don't even necessarily have to tell anybody it's what you're doing <laughs> if you don't want to, but you know, make that time. And I, I do think you're right. I think that we, we don't expect to just run when we get a whim. Like if running's important to you, you're not like, oh, when I feel like running, I'll run. If you're working full time and you have a kid, you better set a time or it's not going to happen. And the same is true for anything really. Next up is a question from Marathoner already dreaming big about the 2020 trials. She writes, my husband is very supportive of my running, cheers for me at races, expresses his pride in my hard work and accomplishments, and mostly doesn't complain when I leave for some days up to two hours to run right after coming home from work. But when I'm well into a training cycle and I'm trying to convince my own tired mind to not get in the way of my body's work, he says things like, you should just skip your run today. It's just an easy run. It's no big deal. I get it. He's sick of only getting about an hour or two of my time before I go to bed, but it's also sort of damaging to my psyche to hear the negativity. It feels like a lack of support despite all that aforementioned support. So my question is, how do you suggest balancing, one, gratitude for a partner's repeated sacrifices of time spent together with, two, a continued commitment to the demands of training? Mm. Well, for Marathoner already dreaming big about the 2020 trials, my first thought was that's four years from now and that you definitely have a point of friction with your partner on this and that's a long time. So you're going to have to come to some sort of a solution here. So I'm glad you called or you wrote in. Um, I'm glad you wrote in. Uh, I would say that really the heart of your question isn't limited to running and work and marriage. Uh, it's kind of this idea of balancing your self-actualization with 
nurturing a relationship with someone else, being who you really want to be and also being there for the person you're committed to. And that can take shape in a lot of different ways. Um, so I would say that I, I have some personal experience with this. Um, you know, earlier in my marriage with Jesse, I was the one who was always making time for, for running, going on trips, training camps, you name it, very extreme running stuff. Um, and, and then in recent years, it's been more him as he's been getting into professional triathlon. You know, he won his first Ironman last year and he's fully, fully in it. And he's a CEO of Picky Bars. So he's kind of more like the you in this, in this scenario, hypothetically. Um, and I do find myself, um, feeling resentful of triathlon and it taking him away from me when I don't get to see him that much, you know, and I feel like I need more. And I think that these things that your husband is saying to you that you should just skip your run today. It's just an easy run. It's no big deal. Um, I think that your intuition is right. And that that really is more of just a reflection of he wants more of you, you know, he doesn't really want to sabotage your running and he really does know the run is important to you that easy run, he knows it matters, but he does want more of you. So I'd say that, um, the first comment I have about advice is I think you should talk to him about it, about his way of communicating that to you because he's not communicating directly. I need more of your time. I really, I I want more of you in my life. He's being kind of passive aggressive. So in general, if you can approach that with him, that, you know, it's not cool to get negative, obviously in a more loving way of what do you really want to say? Like, what it, what are we really getting at? Because it, it is important to me to do those runs. It is important when I set a goal that I check all the boxes and I commit the, I complete the work I've committed to doing. And, and as my partner, I really need you to support me in that. And when you say these things to kind of help me get off the hook, it is damaging to my psyche. I feel like it's okay to communicate that in a loving way and say that, you know, as my partner, this is how you can really help me by encouraging me to get out the door in those moments. But then in the same conversation, acknowledging that this is coming from a different place and how can you address what he really wants? Um, I think that what's helped Jesse and I is trying to recognize certain waves like the sine and cosine waves of a season and knowing and having expectations around there being certain times where I'm not going to get very much of him and he's going to be kind of an empty balloon when he gets home on a lot of those days and that I do support him chasing this goal he can only do for a certain amount of time in his life and that's important to me too and it's important to him and I want to support him in that but it but I also do need periods of time where it's a break from that where he does have more to offer when he comes home and he is more energized and has more time. And, you know, we're still working that out to be totally honest, but what I, we've gotten far enough to know that having the conversation about it in an open and honest way is huge. And, um, and that it is okay for him to ask for more of your time. You don't have to give it to him, but it is okay for him to ask and making sure he feels like it's okay to ask you for that. And then you could, you know, you need to, you need to strategize here. You know, if you're single and you really just do whatever you want, anytime you want, you don't have to think about these things. And of course that's a choice too. And if you want to be in a relationship with this person and 
you know, it's, and there's benefits to that for you and you're committed, then, um, there are some things you could do. You could, um, have a couple key marathons that you do maybe two a year and then plan in some time where you train for something shorter distance, half marathon, a 5k, um, build in the times that you know you're going to be taking a break and plan something with your partner during those times when you know you're going to be available, like plan ahead. And, and then the other thing is if you're only present for an hour or two before bed with him, asking yourself really like how present am I being when I'm there? Am I showing up for that? Is, is it the small amount of time that's bothering him that he's getting or, or is it that even in that time, you're not really there? You're not really engaging because you can, you can make an hour really count you know, um, if it's, if an hour is all you have, but, um, yeah. So I guess I would just say that this is a very, very, very common thing for high achieving people and people that have work and fitness goals and and competition goals. And so you're not alone in this any means. And I'm really, by any means, I'm really glad that you asked this question. Um, and I think that you'll get something really good at it, out of it by opening a conversation about what's really going on there. Yeah, I think it's the communication and the clarity of communication you're speaking to, yeah, which is going to be the pathway to hopefully a new paradigm for their relationship. Yes, and I can also say that there is a, a big landmine in these kinds of conversations that you'll want to avoid, and that is there's a tendency to want to be territorial or like uh, defensive to protect the thing. In your case, it would be running to feel like it's under attack and it could go that way when you have this conversation. And so just know that, um, that there's a possibility you'll feel that way, that like this thing you really care about is being attacked and, and just coming back to that, the, the goal is to balance your things that you love that bring you personal joy with what it takes to nurture and honor this relationship and if that is indeed what you want, is to have personal goals and have a relationship, then, 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 then there will be parts of your running that are up for negotiation. The next question is from someone who calls themselves a fat marathoner who's in their 30s. How do you reconcile being happy with yourself and wanting to change? I'm inundated with body positive talk which makes me complacent about being overweight. But part of me really wants to lose weight, and I know it would make me happier and healthier and a much faster runner. How can I be both happy about my body, but also wish it were different? Isn't dissatisfaction with yourself built into any goal? So I really like this question. This topic of body positivity has been coming up a lot around me. And, um, you know, everybody's probably noticed it. There's been you know, women's running had a plus size model on the cover a few months back. There's been um, more diversity of body types being celebrated. It's something brands are starting to jump on the bandwagon of um, a little bit more, and that's a good thing. You know that we we are in desperate need of more body positivity and not having this age old message of you need to look a certain way in order to feel good about your life in order to be successful. And that everything else you're doing doesn't really matter until your body looks a certain way. Cause that's, what's been the dominating message for a really long time, which leads to body shaming and all kinds of other things and talking to ourselves in ways we would never think to talk to, to other a loved people. one. Exactly. Um, and so I thought this was such a 
cool take on one potentially negative effect on a person who has a goal um, to have a certain body for performance when they find that so much positivity around them of being, quote, overweight um, makes it hard to lose the weight they want to lose. Um, I want to say it's that straightforward, but I'm not sure it is because in reading this question, a fat marathoner says, how can I be both happy about my body, but also wish it were different? Um, and before that, she says, part of me really wants to lose weight and I know it would make me happier and healthier. And then in parentheses, and a much faster runner. So she doesn't say, part of me wants to lose weight because I want to be a faster runner and it will help me be a faster runner. Um, there's these other things. It will make me happier and healthier. And I don't know what fat marathoner's weight is. I'm not a doctor. She doesn't say. If, I were, if I'm just going to go off the assumption that she is heavier than what she wants to be to run the times she wants to run um, versus clinically obese or overweight, um, then the fact that you say, I know it would make me happier and healthier. Would it really though? Like, would it really make you happier and healthier to lose some weight? Or is that still a leftover thing from all the messages that have been, that are, are still the, the majority of messages out there? And is this question in some ways, this perfect storm of, hey, there's all this body positivity going on, which is great and bad, but then also I'll be happier and healthier if I lose weight. Well, will you be happier and healthier if you lose weight? And the road to losing weight, is that going to be actually honoring who you are? Yes. Yeah. And will this end of the question, this part about isn't dissatisfaction with yourself built into any goal? Um, That's so meaty. It is. It really is. And it is, I thought about this for a long time, actually, because um, I've, thought, I've spent periods of my career using the tactic of self-abuse to motivate myself to run faster or train harder or whatever. You know, you don't hit the times in a workout and you tell yourself, I'm not tough enough. It's because you're not tough enough. You need to be tougher. Um, but what I have found works in running and what I coach into my athletes isn't isn't having uh, the goal, the achievement of a goal be based on, you know, self-flagellation or whatever. Yeah, and or this the self-talk of unworthiness. Yeah, it's not about that. It, that's not, it, it's not a satisfying way to pursue a goal. For one, you're going to be on a path that's just less happy and it's not necessary. You can achieve a goal. I think the best way to achieve a goal is to be stoked on the goal. To have a goal you're so pumped about that, you know, the the steps on the way are choices instead of sacrifices. It's and um, I was thinking about if your goal is to um, is to run faster on a four mile tempo run, you don't need to think about your last bad tempo run and beat yourself up about it and talk about how bad your last tempo run was in order to get excited about running a faster tempo run. But so many times with weight, we feel like we need to be like, you know, look in the mirror. You're fat. You know, you know, you uh, you need to like be so. I need to be grossed out by myself in order to like eat less or work out more. And 
I just don't think it's true. I mean, I know it's not true. From times in my career, I have to trim down and wait at the end of every competition season a few pounds. And if I, in the times when I've tried to do it from a place of, ugh, ugh, why haven't I lost this weight, you know, and this is gross or whatever, it doesn't, it doesn't really work, you know? And so I think you can just get, ex- what I would recommend that this athlete do is if losing weight isn't about being healthier and happier overall in life, um, if, unless a doctor tells you, you need to for your health, but let's assume you're, you might be healthy and happy at the weight you are that really, it could be a possible thing to achieve, but running faster, it will be to your advantage to trim down some. And so looking at this goal weight that you have, not as a way to be happier and healthier necessarily, but looking at it as I am shaping my body in a way that will make it powerful to do this specific task. And it doesn't really extend beyond that task. And if that task is exciting enough to you, achieving that running goal that will be aided by nutrition and weight, then it will, I think that will be a really powerful driver. I think you can frame it that way and then not have it spill over in these other ways into your confidence. Uh, Yeah, it's just, it's one, it's one thing. It's making it actually less of a big deal. Yes then we actually place value on in our culture and our yeah. society. Yeah, it is. It's about one thing. What's the goal? What's the reason you want to do it? Keep it simple. And I really, the question, isn't it, isn't dissatisfaction with yourself built into any goal? I think that's, that dissatisfaction is not sustainable. Yeah. As what we're speaking to, if you're coming from a place of either self-hatred or self-sabotage or that unworthiness, like, and that's always fueling your goals over time, you're not going to actually, it may serve you f- to run a couple of fast races or hard workouts, but it's actually not going to fuel you for the long, the long run. I agree. I think that, um, I would say that dissatisfaction can be a good spark to initiate change, but that it isn't, I would not recommend it as a long-term motivator. Yes. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, of course, dissatisfaction with where you are right now with one specific area of where you are right now, how fast you are. If you're dissatisfied with how fast you are, okay, let that light the spark. And then pick a goal and then get really excited about the goal and forget about the dissatisfaction anymore. Think about that goal. Why is it important to you? What does it mean to you? What will it feel like to achieve it? You know, like dwell in that space. Yes. And then you'll probably feel really empowered and, and like energized around making good decisions, you know, like that mo- motivation will be very positively fueled. I totally agree. I think we just have one more question. Yeah. So this next question is from Pat in his 30s, and he writes, what has Jude taught you about life? And he also writes a P.S. I would leave my phone number, but I would make a complete fool of myself if Lauren Fleshman called me. <laughs> I love the honesty. <laughs> That's funny. Um, oh, yeah, these questions that seem really easy and they're really hard. What has Jude taught me about life? My gosh. Jude has humbled me to no end. He is wonderful. You know, he's shown me a whole other side of the world, like opened my eyes to the universal experience of motherhood, of parenthood, 
of caring about another generation besides your own, of caring about the future of the planet more, of caring about things like the economy more, of just kind of paying attention more in general to the world around me. Um, I'd say that one of the things that Jude has taught me about life that's the most difficult to swallow is that life as a parent is really challenging and that suddenly choices are for yourself are so much more charged and complicated and um and that you that you have made a choice to be a parent that is permanent and that the only way forward is to when there's times of conflict is to change who you are to make it better. This isn't like a normal two-way relationship where if there's a conflict you can kind of negotiate who's going to who's going to give. You know, when it's a parent-child relationship and there's something's not working, the parent is the one that gives. And whether that's um you know, giving up some of the hobbies you really liked before or getting used to having less freedom. Like I've, I think that's one of the toughest things for me is I've been a very fly by the seat of my pants person. And it's, you definitely can't do that and be a parent. So there are certain parts of me that the core of me has had to like kind of squirm and change in uncomfortable ways. And luckily I love my child and I'm, you know, I, I want, I'm incentivized to make those changes, but it's not to say I, I do them I just don't just like do them with a smile on my face all the time. Um, I also think that what Jude has taught me is that, and I mentioned this earlier in a question, is that parents lie <laughs> and that parents um, parents hide the toughest parts of parenting uh, because we want to romanticize it and we want to be positive. And, and I mean, I'm probably sounding really negative right now because you're not used to, people aren't probably used to hearing that. And it, and like, um, it's uncomfortable to even say that, but I have learned that when you find a parent that is truthful about the difficult parts of parenting, you hang on to that person. Like you need someone that will give it to you straight that when you can talk about something you're struggling with, with terrible twos or whatever it is that they can, tell you with true empathy and like how, what their experience is and the ways it makes them feel. Um, I would say to get a little bit bigger picture, I think Jude has taught me that, um, just that there's, you know, it's a cliche, but that there's so much more to life than my little world of what I think is important and what isn't important. And that, you know, family is, is family is important is not just a slogan, you know, that it, for a family to be happy and functional, it takes work and commitment and sacrifices and, um, and that there, that is, is beautiful doing that, being put in a position to do that is beautiful and rewarding and hard, but re more rewarding. I think what's really cool about this question is that um, the way in which you've answered it is really from an honest, authentic place and being able to say, yeah, it is hard and this is kind of the underbelly of it and people aren't having these conversations. But that's been kind of a theme with a lot of our questions today is this kind of family connection. And even from 
all the other questions we received we weren't able to address, which we're so grateful for, is that I think in our world, we need to start to have some of these more uncomfortable conversations with people, whether it's with our spouse or our friends about that sometimes like things are hard and we can put on a face as like, oh, I'm a mother, love my two kids, the best thing that's ever happened to me, you know, every day is like beautiful, but it's, it is really challenging balancing it all in our modern world. It is. And I am seeing the connections you're talking about. There's like these empowering slogans of, you know, motherhood is beautiful Everybody is beautiful. It's always worth chasing after your dreams. Never give up on your dreams. You know, every we, partner should be supportive of everything you do. Yeah. And you hear these things and the reality realities are much more complex, obviously. And these questions today were great at showing us some of the insides of that and giving us a chance to talk about them. Yeah. And that we will be continuing this hopefully for a few months to come. And if we weren't able to address your question, resubmit it for next time. Um, and if a new question has arisen, arisen for you from today's conversation, we want to hear it. Yep. Thank you very much for listening. And thanks, Jules, for, for this episode. Thank you, Lauren, for just bringing your, your realness and your wisdom to here. Lauren's perspective on just about everything always leaves me thinking long after the conversation ends. We were really touched from last month's feedback on our first Ask Lauren Fleshman series and look forward to continuing this series on a monthly basis. If you want to ask a question for March's episode and maybe even have us call you live on air, keep your eyes peeled to our Twitter accounts where we will announce the next one week window where you can submit your questions for March's episode. Were you out on the run when listening today? Maybe you were walking your dog or cycling on an indoor trainer. How did your workout really go? Did you feel tired, energized, or maybe just so-so? If you want to dial in your workouts and take your recovery to the next level, today's podcast sponsor, Jaybird Sport, is sharing the rain with Rue listeners. What's even the rain? Well, the rain is an activity tracker that can be worn on your wrist like a sleek, comfortable bracelet, but it does so much more than just track your steps in your sleep. Its innovative technology automatically tracks the various activities you do and recognizes each one of them individually. The rain also goes beyond just tracking the hours you sleep at night, but provides you with recommendations on how many hours to sleep, when to head to bed, and when to wake up based on your sleep patterns. And my favorite part of the rain, though, is the go zone. Drawing on your personal heart rate variability data, the rain's go zone gives you a go score every morning that tells you how recovered, how fatigued, or ready you are for your next workout. If you, too, want to experience taking your active life to the next level with the rain, Jaybird has given Running On Home listeners a generous discount of 40% off this advanced active recovery band with the discount code FLESHMAN40. That's F-L-E-S-H-M-A-N 40, which can be found in this episode's show notes. And if you want to be the one lucky duck who actually wins a rain, Running on Home is having a giveaway where you can simply leave a review of the podcast on iTunes, send a screenshot of your review to runningonome at gmail.com, both the rain discount code and giveaway end on February 29th, 2016. So head to this episode's show notes on runningonome.com right now for more information on how you can get the most out of your life with Jaybird's Rain. Thank you all for listening today. Thank you for supporting Running on Ohm. Deep gratitude to each and every one of you. Yes, you. This is your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a rue-filled day. <laughs> <laughs>